The text for the sermon this morning is taken from our scripture reading. We're going to focus on 1 John 3, the first three verses, and we'll read those verses again. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So far the text. Following the proclamation of God's Word, we will rise and sing together these words of our text as they've been set to music in hymn 72, and we'll sing all five stanzas. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are some times where it's good to simply stop and to go back to the basics. Things can become confusing. Thoughts start spinning in all kinds of different directions. It's hard to make sense of different matters that we're dealing with or even to make sense of life in general. In many ways, this going back to the basics is exactly what we have in our text this morning. If you look back at chapter 2 from this letter of John, there are a number of different things that come out. And just by way of a very quick summary, in the verses 15 through 17, he'd written to the believers about loving God and not loving the world. So clearly there's that temptation that they're dealing with. Then in the verses afterwards, he'd given a warning concerning the antichrists that were certain to come and that have already arrived. And John breaks it down for them in verse 22. He says that the antichrists are those who deny the Father and the Son. But in contrast, he says the one who confesses the Son has the Father also, verse 23. So while there were those who were trying to deceive and to confuse them when it came to different core doctrines, John brings it back to the basics. He reminds the believers, whoever confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior also has the Father. And that sets things up beautifully for the words of our text in chapter 3. For those who cling to Christ in faith, they may know their real, true identity, namely that they are children of God. And that was true for the believers in the days of the early church, but it remains true for believers today. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And about this I may proclaim to you the Word of God. The theme for the sermon this morning is, we are children of God. And we're going to see that this confession is first, in the first place a present reality, secondly that it anticipates future glory. And finally, it encourages ongoing purification. Brothers and sisters, John begins our text with a command. 
He takes the focus of the believers and he directs it in some place very specific. And he says, see. It's an interesting word. Because by telling the believers to look at something or to see something, John's making it clear that what he's about to teach them is something tangible. He's not dealing with abstract theories or confusing philosophy. He's giving the believers something that they can really grasp for themselves. But then it's striking. He doesn't tell believers to immediately consider their status as children of God. Instead, John in the first place directs them to the root of the matter. There's a specific divine motivation that lies behind that reality that believers are children of God. He writes in verse 1 of our text, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Now, there's some interesting language that he uses at this point. In the original, that phrase translated as what kind of, it's actually a single word. It's used relatively few times throughout the New Testament, but if we do look at some of the other occasions where it's used, we get a sense of what John's saying. Just to give one example, the same word is found in Matthew 8, verse 27. After the Lord Jesus had calmed the wind and the sea, the disciples say to themselves, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? So from this, you get a sense that with this word, there's a deep sense of awe. There's a deep sense of amazement that stands behind it. And that's what John really wants to communicate here in our text. Having presented all the different warnings and the different instructions so far in his letter, he doesn't want the believers to lose their stability going forward, and so he brings them back to the basics, and he encourages them, consider what kind of love the Father has shown to us. It's almost as though he's saying to these believers, can you believe that we've received that kind of love? Can you see just how amazing, how wonderful that love is? And that word for what kind of, it has the more literal meaning of from what country. So he's talking about something that's different, something that's actually foreign. Every person has a sense of love, what it is to love. But the love that John is referring to in our text is on a whole different level. It's completely unique. It's a supernatural kind of love. And there's something else John wants the believers to be aware of when it comes to this love namely that it's given to them. This love of God is not something they've earned. It's not something they deserved in any way. It has been generously handed over to them in a way that they do strongly benefit from this love. And so rich and wonderful is that love of God that because of it, believers are now called 
God's children. And it's not a position that they can take for granted. They're not part of God's family of the faith because they earn that right. They work their way up to that kind of status. It is all because of God's astounding love for them. And as we said earlier, that's true not only for the believers back then, it remains true for the believers today. And so reflecting on it, namely that we are truly children of God, also forces us to just step back and to really think about this for a moment. Because if we're honest, we know the facts. We know we're children of God. We've heard it in the preaching before. We've read of it in Scripture. We use the language in prayer every time we address God as our Father. This is a regular part of our theological vocabulary. But how often do we stop and think about what it really means that we are children of God? Because right now, at this very moment, our status as believers is that we are children of God. This is not just a future reality we're dealing with. This is something present. And John actually emphasizes this fact in verse 1 when he writes, and so we are. So how many times in a day, how many times in a week, do we stop and just think about the wonder of what it is that I am a child of God. How frequently does it enter our minds that this is not something we have to wait for, it's something that we enjoy right now. When things become chaotic, when there's so many questions and thoughts that are running through the mind at rapid speeds, how often do we just stop and reflect, I'm a child of God. I'm the recipient of God's love. That love of God is something central for the Apostle John. He brings it out often. It comes out in his letters that he wrote, also his gospel narrative. Just to give a quick illustration from each one, in chapter 4, verse 9 of this letter, he writes, In this is the love of God that was made manifest among us, God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. There's the well-known words from John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the love John's referring to in verse 1 of our text. And it's not a wonder that he is filled with such awe and amazement when he thinks about this love of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God because, brothers and sisters, that amazing love is the very love that caused God to send his own Son into this world so that as he was here, he might suffer throughout all his life so that he might humble himself to death on the cross. It was that love that motivated God to make His own Son the atoning sacrifice for our sins so that we might be washed clean from all our guilt. 
It's that love of God that ought to cause us to stop and to just marvel in amazement. It's easy to just focus on the benefit, to say, yes, I'm a child of God. But it always has to go back to the reason, the root. It's because God so loved us that He opened up the way of salvation for us. It's because our Savior so loved us that He was willing to lay down His life for us. It is because of God's love for us in Jesus Christ, a love that we can barely begin to explain because it is actually so foreign to man that we have the assurance right now in the present we are God's children. But it's not an assurance for everyone. Being a child of God is not just a general truth. It's a tremendous privilege given to those who confess the Son. As John writes in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13 of his gospel, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what it comes down to is this, only those who confess the Son, only those who say Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, only they have the Father. And what a wondrous truth that is. Truly, we can never speak enough about the love of God for us, by which He's made us His children. And just think about that as well. When it comes to salvation, God doesn't just set us free from sin and guilt and then say, Kate, go on your way. Deliverance means being brought in to the family of the faith. If salvation were simply redemption from sin and guilt, yes, that would have been amazing. But the fact that God actually adopts us as His children, that He desires and He establishes that relationship with us, that is equally astounding. Because we're not just talking about any kind of relationship either. It's one of the most intimate relationships possible. God brings us to Himself as His children. He teaches us to know Him as our Father in heaven. But what does that mean to you? one thing to confess God as Father, but how does that impact daily life? The truth is that knowing God as our Father to be a present reality covers every area of life. We can see it in a sense from the relationship that we have with our Father in this world. What's true for that relationship is even more true for the relationship we have with our Heavenly Father, because when things are well, it means that we not only have one who loves us, but who also takes care of us. We have one who protects us, who guards us, who's always looking out for us. It means that there's one who disciplines us in order to teach us. So having God as our Father has many different implications. But more than anything else, having God as Father is meant to comfort us. If you think about a child, 
child who's in danger, who's terrified, what's the one thing that will cause that child to not be afraid any longer? It's when their father arrives on the situation, when he handles things. But the child is actually comforted before the situation is resolved. Just seeing their father arrive is enough because the child has complete trust in the father. The child knows that father's going to be able to take care of things, that he's going to make things well. Well, just as that is the truth on the human level, it's even more so for those who know their father in heaven, knowing that in the present, right now, we are God's children. That fills us with a sense of peace. Our Father is still taking care of us. He's watching over us, protecting and guarding us. That's not something about which we have to be hesitant or have doubts. It's something we can have full assurance of. Because consider what love He showed just so that we might be His children. It's His love in Jesus Christ, the Savior whom He gave us, that through His precious blood, He might redeem and save us. Going back to the basics, it makes all the difference in the world. Life gets confusing. Circumstances become tiring. But through it all, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God And so we are. And it's that love of God that also separates us from the world. They don't know us, as John writes in our text. There's a general unfamiliarity between those of the world and those who are the children of God. There's something significant that they don't have in common, which actually makes them complete strangers. It's like they're talking completely different languages. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him, we read in verse 1. The question is, who does Him refer to? Is this a reference to the Father or is it a reference to Jesus Christ? There's good arguments for both positions, but what we see throughout the letter is the focus John has on the person and work of the Son of God. He who confesses the Son has the Father, chapter 2, verse 23. But in the same verse, he says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. It's the love of God in Jesus Christ that sets the believer apart from the unbeliever. One is a part of the family of God, the other part of the family of the evil one. And there's an ongoing feud or an ongoing enmity between those two families. The reason why the world does not know the children of God is because they don't know the one through whom we have become God's children. They don't know God the Son, which means they don't have God the Father either. It all centers on the work of Jesus Christ. For those who know Him, who confess Him, who believe in Him, they have the Father to hold them and to carry them in this life. And brothers and sisters, that is something that the world simply cannot understand. They can't wrap their heads around the fact that the children of God have such peace. They have such contentment. Even when things are difficult, 
they don't understand what causes God's children to tick. Those who do not understand the work of Jesus Christ will never be able to truly know the children of God. There will always be a disconnect. And yes, that in itself can lead to challenges, but it doesn't have to lead to discontentment or confusion because we still have the Father taking care of us. With this confession of our present reality, we find the true source of peace. Through Jesus Christ, the Almighty God is my faithful Father. It is a basic confession. It is one that we have heard many times, something that we have said many times. But it's that basic confession that leads to so much comfort for the believer, even when things are troubling. And while being comforted in the present, it is the simple and basic confession that also directs believers to the anticipation of future glory. We come to our second point. There's no doubt about the fact that John wants the believers to have the peace of knowing that they are God's children in the present. And he even repeats this fact at the beginning of verse 2. He writes there, beloved, we are God's children now. He doesn't want them to let go of that. But while there are tremendous riches in knowing ourselves as God's children now, John also makes it clear in our text that the best is yet to come. In verse 2, he continues, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so John directs the believers to the fact that there is something that lies ahead in the future. And it ties in with the fact that for those who have become children of God by grace, they're not only blessed in the present, but they are the heirs of a great inheritance. The Apostle Paul addresses the same matter in Romans 8. He writes there in verses 16 and 17, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So there's the present again. And if children then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Having been brought into that family of the faith by the grace of God, our Father has made us heirs of the glorious inheritance to come, namely life in His presence forever. It is a life in which the work of salvation will reach its completion, a life in which we'll share in the glorification of our Savior, Again, Paul makes that clear in Romans 8. There he speaks about the children of God in terms of the fact that they were predestined by God, called by God, justified by God, glorified by God. Those who belong to Christ, who share in Him through faith, they also share in His resurrection. They receive new life now, the fullness of life in the world to come, John says, though, that what we will be has not yet appeared. It's something that we have to wait for. In the present, there is still the brokenness of life. There's the frailty of body and mind as things continue to break down over time. There's the weakness of the flesh that we continue to experience each day. 
There's the ongoing misery of this world and the challenges that believers face in it. Even for those who are children of God, who know the amazing love of God, they are not immune from such things. You see, John does not want the believers to have this notion that for God's children, things are going to be somehow different in that they're spared from misery. But knowing themselves as God's children shapes their thinking and perspective in this life, directing them at all times to continue going forward with the eyes of faith. The children of God need to continue anticipating that time when their brother and Savior will appear, bringing that fullness of salvation. And notice how John speaks of this time in our text. He says, we will be like Him. That is, we will be like Jesus Christ. He does not mean we'll become God in some way. This is not about the children of God taking on a divine nature. This is about being perfect, like Christ. It's about being freed from sin forever, being freed from the effects of sin, sharing in the immortality of Christ, never again being subject to death and decay. And having undergone that wondrous transformation... We will see Him as He is. And brothers and sisters, stop and think about that for a moment. We will see Him as He is. The children of God, at the appearing of their great God and Savior, they will see their Lord. They will see their brother just as He is. seeing the face of our Savior, being able to gaze upon His beauty, as we also sang in Psalm 27, knowing that this is the one who died on the cross, who obtained your salvation. Can you imagine being able to just see Him face to face with your own eyes? In fact, this is possibly one of the greatest joys about eternity, being able to see our Lord there won't be a veil to block our view. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians 13. Comes out in Revelation 22 as well, where the angel is showing John the new Jerusalem. In verse 4 we read, They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Seeing the face of God was something deeply desired by God's people in the Old Testament, because what it meant is that the favor of God was upon them. God's face shining on them was the sign of His blessing to them. In Psalm 67, the psalmist prays that God would make His face to shine upon His people. Psalm 102, verse 2, do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. We also sang of it in Psalm 22. David speaks about the care of God right from the time of his birth and how God did not keep His face concealed before Him. You see, brothers and sisters, when God's face is upon a person, it means everything is well. Sin has been removed from the equation. God in His holiness cannot stand the sight of sin. And that desire found in the Old Testament is now echoed by John when he says that when Christ appears... 
we will see him face to face in that state of perfection. Sin will have been fully removed. The old order of things passed away. For the children of God in the present, they may be assured that in Christ, the friendly face of their Father shines on them in love right now. But they can also anticipate the time where they will see their Savior face to face in glory. And so it's not a wonder that John stops. He goes back to the basics. Because everything is put in perspective again. God's children are reminded where everything is at now, but where everything is going. They are God's children now. They receive everything they need from the Father now. But they have even more to look forward to, anticipating the glory that will be theirs at the coming of Christ. And knowing all this, it serves as motivation for ongoing purification as they await the appearing of their Savior. We come to our third point. In the final verse of our text, the inspired apostle makes it clear that knowing of our present riches, living in anticipation of future glory, it does not lead to an attitude of carelessness. We read in verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, brothers and sisters, it's striking that this is the only time in this epistle where John uses that word hope, something that Paul often refers to in his letters, but it's not something that John often speaks about. So now that it does come up, it's meant to be a clear message to the believers It's like he's saying to them, yes, we have this confident hope, we have this expectation, yes, this is all certain, this is all true, but now, what do you do with it? What does this mean to you? And this hope needs to function in terms of encouragement for living a life of growing in purity word for purify, it has the sense of causing something to be morally pure, free from sin. And the standard for such purity is very clear. The child of God purifies himself as he is pure. So, Christ is the standard to follow. Just as he is perfectly set apart from sin, as we read later in chapter 3, so his people must also strive to be set apart from sin. It's what our Savior taught while he was here on earth. Matthew 5, verse 48, he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, that's quite the instruction from John. And he knows about the weakness and the sinfulness that man has to deal with. So how is it possible for sinners, although they are children of God, to purify themselves? Well, to understand this, we need to see it in the context of what he writes in the verses after our text. In verse 4, he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. From that, it's clear. He's talking about a pattern of life. But then he continues, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. 
That's why Christ came, to take away the sins of his people. He took them upon himself. He nailed them to the cross so that we might receive forgiveness. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Taking away sin has another meaning to it. It's not just about the removal of sin's stain. It's also about being set free from sin's power. By the death and resurrection of the Son of God, sin has been defeated. Sin has lost its grip. And so John goes from there to speak about the fact that the one who abides in Christ does not continue sinning. The one who keeps on sinning is of the devil, and Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. So with that, it all comes together. How does one purify himself as Christ is pure? There's only one way, and that is by abiding in Christ, being rooted in Him by faith, falling on our knees constantly at the foot of the cross, seeking forgiveness from our Savior, praying that as we are united to Him by faith, His life would continue to flow through us, causing us to flee from sin, to practice righteousness. Everything in our text is ultimately about Christ and what He has done for His people. Through Him we are made children of God, a present reality. When He appears, we will be like Him, seeing Him as He is. And abiding in Him, we purify ourselves by fleeing from sin, living in thankfulness and obedience. It's the gospel of grace, as we've heard it before. It's the basics of the Christian faith. But it's a confession that makes all the difference. It puts every day into perspective. Things in this life can often become chaotic and confusing. But each one who looks to Christ in faith can say, I am a child of God. But brothers and sisters, don't just say the words. Think about them. Reflect on them. Consider what lies behind it all, namely that amazing love of God which He showed through the giving of His own Son. And isn't it amazing that you can know with complete certainty that God loved you so much that He adopted you as His child? To know that He loved you so much that He sent His Son to die for you, to live in the anticipation of the better things that are yet to come, there are so many other things to think about. There's so much else that requires our attention. But here's the truth. Every bit of that other stuff pales in comparison to these basic truths of our text. We are so blessed beyond all measure. It's humbling to say the least. One can barely begin to grasp the love of God for us in Christ. But it's that love we have in the present. It's that love in which we are safe and secure as Father continues to carry us through this life into the world to come where we will live with Him in glory, perfectly and forever. Amen.